0: too busy. We're working all the time. We've got our phone that has us plugged in all the time and our habits have changed. It's no longer normal to go and buy five whole ingredients and cook dinner. We now just reach for the crinkly packaged foods because they're tasty and convenient and cheap. They're everywhere.
1: Hello and welcome back to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, Today we are digging into the underbelly of the typical American diet and the pervasive allure of ultra-processed foods, which now make up an astounding 60% of the American diet. This group covers packaged cereals, breads, yogurts, frozen dinners, plus of course, sweets and soda. And there's mounting scientific evidence that the UPFs are not only potentially addictive, but are also linked to our rocketing rates of obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease and cancer. So how do we recognize these junk foods and make better eating choices? We've gifted ourselves with the presence of three knowledgeable guests today. We have Jerry Mand who is CEO of Nourish Science and an adjunct professor of nutrition at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. We have Tara Fasino, she's Associate Director of the Coffrin logan Center for Addiction Research and Treatment at the University of Kansas. She's an experimental psychologist who studies processes involved in addiction, obesity, and eating disorders. And Larissa Zimbaroff is an investigative journalist who covers how the foods we eat are being changed by technology. She's author of the book technically food inside Silicon Valley's mission to change what we eat. So welcome to you all. So first, let's start with what we know about the American diet. Jerry, how do we stack up against the rest of the developed world and why are we doing so badly?
2: Um, We don't stack up uh, well. One common metric, really, if you're a nation, one of the maybe the most fundamental is your life expectancy. How long do you live? And for many, many years, the U.S. was with the top 20 developed countries, we were sort of in the middle of the pack. And that started to change in the 1980s. Uh, We started to drop lower and lower among those 20. Um, And then pre-COVID, actually for the first time, um, many people expect life expectancies to increase from generation to generation. But for three years in a row, it had decreased. That was pre-COVID. Then, of course, there was COVID. But even since COVID, where other nations have uh, recovered in some of their life expectancy, we've continued to uh, drop, um, gaining A little. Um, But when you look at those 20 developed countries now, the US is uh, far and away the uh, worst off. And so we're very uh, sick.
1: Why do Americans eat so much junk food? It can't just all be about comfort. This great word we keep hearing about comfort foods.
2: So no, it's not. You're right. It's because of uh, three things, taste, cost and convenience. And and so food companies that design uh, these processed foods are trying to meet what the public says, um, it wants for the taste of uh, delicious food, uh, a cost is a, as cheap or affordable as possible. And convenient doesn't take much time to cook or prepare. But the key thing is that the law already requires that food keep us uh, healthier, that it's safe. It doesn't make us sick, certainly. And that's the problem here is that companies are producing food um, that for taste, cost and convenient, and they're ignoring the part of a law that says that people need to be able to eat these foods every day and not get sick. And it's also the government's fault, particularly the Food and Drug Administration, also the Department of Agriculture that enforces the laws. They're letting companies do this. They know these foods are making us sick. as so sick we saw earlier, and yet they're not acting on it. And so I think companies start off meeting, wanting to meet a consumer demand on taste, cost, and convenience, but they can't get there by creating foods that make us sick. And in this case, in a country with such high obesity, rates, designing a food to be overeaten, which is what they're doing. They're creating, uh, using the um, uh, the chemistry, the science that Tara will be able to tell you about better than I can, Uh, but they're using it to manipulate those parts of our brains that result in us craving certain foods that will keep eating them even when it makes us sick.
1: Okay, Tara, over to you.
3: So I think there's several aspects to this, but we know that a a really critical piece of eating behavior and dietary habits comes from our food environment, like what is around us, what is available to us, and at what cost, as Jerry was mentioning. And we know from some epidemiological work now that actually assessed the food system, and not just people's eating behavior, we know that our food system is largely comprised of Ultra-processed foods that are, you know, hyper palatable, difficult to stop eating, and so when we are surrounded by these types of foods in the grocery store, in the convenience store, everywhere we go, that is a major factor in, you know, people's behavior. Um, we eat what is available to us, what is, you know, often least expensive, and that is largely this food supply. Um, So I think the availability in the environment largely mirrors what people consume. And then, of course, the types of foods that are available that do have a lot of combined palatability nutrients that can provide a really kind of exaggerated uh, rewarding experience when we consume them that are different from kind of naturally occurring foods. Um, Yeah, they can have some real consequences for um, our eating behavior in terms of, you know, over time, we can become sensitive, highly sensitive to cues in our environment. So advertisements, um, sales of these products in various convenience stores are kind of everywhere we look. And we can seek out and consume these foods um, and become hypersensitive to them in the environment um, to try to seek out and consume them over these healthier, minimally processed, um, not hyper palatable, like fresh whole foods.
1: Can we jump over to to Larissa here? So you've spent an awful lot of time researching the food and the technology industry. And even you are surprised uh, by things like cauliflower pizza crust, which you mentioned, which everyone thinks, oh, that's healthy. Mm, Maybe not.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, back to the question of why Americans eat so much junk food quickly. I think it's two things. We're too busy. We're working several jobs. We're working all the time. We've got our phone that has us plugged in all the time, and our habits have changed. It's no longer normal to go and buy five whole ingredients and cook dinner. We now just reach for the crinkly packaged foods because they're tasty and convenient and cheap. And like Tara said, they're everywhere. You can't avoid them. So we actually haven't made our food system easy to navigate for anybody that that most people don't know what, what we know collectively here as a group. Um, so that's, those are the problems. We're too busy. Our habits have changed. And this cheap, convenient, tasty food is just everywhere. It's, you know, proliferating around the country and then around the world about foods that we think are healthy, like cauliflower pizza. You know, we put that ingredient first as the hero, but then you look at the ingredients and there are starches, tapioca starch, rice starch. Um, I was just eating almonds today. I'm so sorry, blue diamond but there's a uh, corn maltodextrin, which is a sugar type of preservative and there's hydrolyzed corn and soy protein. Now I know it needs flavor, right? I want it to have that smoky flavor, but I don't know why it has to have these proteins. So my research is look at the ingredients and then go from there. I think that's the starting point. If people can just read the, the label. Yeah, I mean, you know, how many people touched the ingredients how many steps of processing has led something to your plate? As someone with diabetes, I think about carbohydrates and 15 grams from a piece of fruit in, of carbs is not the same as 15 grams of carbs from puffed popcorn or you know chips. That's interesting. So you
1: actually had to learn this firsthand being diabetic from quite a young age. If you were wanting something right now, from the government or the food industry as a consumer today, what would you be asking for?
0: My idea is that there are guardrails. So Kraft Heinz or Nestle or General Mills, they're allowed to have, I don't know, 10% of their, of their assortment of products can fall into UPF and everything else has to be out of that. Uh, that's, you know, my current idea. You know, I'm not a regulator. I'm not in government. I don't have Jerry's background at the FDA and I don't have Tara's, you know, PhD. But I think that we need to make it easier for consumers to buy food that's good for them. And right now we're not there. We're very far from that. So when we do all this stuff to food, we break it down, we build it back up, we
1: enhance it with flavors, we preserve it, we put additives in it. What do we do to the integrity of food? And is it harmful to us?
2: Well, let me give you one example. You know, humans, homo sapiens have 150,000 years of evolution that we've been through that, been designed to um, survive on a certain food environment. And part of that is something called the microbiome. Many of your listeners may have heard of that. It may be hard to know what that is, but that's really the bacterial cells that are predominantly in our digestive tract that are common in our bodies um, that we knew were there. Uh, For a long time, we we knew they were there. There are actually more uh, bacterial cells in your body than uh, human cells. Uh, But we thought they were just sort of going along for the ride and provided certain functions. Well, now we know that those cells communicate with the human cells and tell us certain things. So let me give you one example. When baker's baked bread a fermentation product as as it once was uh, first created and gave that to people they didn't really destroy the cell wall of the ingredients the wheat and other things there was some milling that took place um, but when you ate that the more refined part of the carbohydrate uh, went into your intestine and was absorbed as energy for your body but the cell wall part of it uh, that would continued down your digestive tract, reach the microbiome. And that's what fed it. That's where it got its calories. Now today, those emulsified foams I was talking about, that are in these cellophane bags. Um, they've destroyed all of the cell wall and the government's not doing its job. It said that, well, you know, as long as you have the same proportion of bran and the sperm and Fiber, you can call it 100% whole grain bread. Well, that's just not true. When you manipulate the uh, particle size of what's in that bread, uh, what ends up happening is when you eat it, um, it, there's nothing left to go down to the microbiome. It's all absorbed earlier in the digestive tract, and no energy gets down to the microbiome because all of that cell wall material that was once in products we ate have been pulverized by the kinds of extreme processing ultra processed foods go through. The result of that, as we think now, and the science is still evolving, is that the microbiome sends a signal getting where well, you're not. We're not getting any calories down here human host sends some more down here. And so it's triggering your hormones to get you to eat more because as far as it's concerned, you're not getting these calories because it doesn't know that it's being absorbed all upwards. So, you know, 150,000 years, our body was designed to encounter foods as they occurred, you know, alongside people in, in nature. And we just haven't caught up to the radical transformation that companies are making to our food. And most importantly, the government hasn't insisted that when they make these transformations, they demonstrate they're safe for people to eat. They're not.
1: You're listening to Cambridge Forum. Is our junk food addiction killing us? With guests, Professor Jerry Mand from Harvard's Chan School of Public Health, Tara Fazzino, psychologist at the Coferin Logan Center for Addiction Research and Treatment at the University of Kansas. And Larissa Zimbarov, author of Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. We all know how many people are now suffering from allergies. I mean, they're through the roof. People never used to be allergic. Certainly when I was growing up, I think there was one person I remember in the whole time growing up that was allergic to milk. Nobody had peanut allergies or anything else. And I'm sure Tara might be able to talk about some of the other issues that food's causing, like apart from allergies asthma and, uh, and and even depression amongst people
3: i mean there are many potential effects of these foods that you know as you mentioned we're starting to be able to understand now but we have quite a bit of work and kind of a lot of catch up to do really in terms of the foods themselves because they are often designed in a manner that can keep us eating which ultimately results for companies in like us purchasing more of their food. But that by that same design, you know, we're often in a, in a state where we are consuming foods that are difficult within the eating occasion to stop eating. That can, you know, we've, we've clearly talked about metabolic disease and obesity, things like that. The hypothesis is that these foods may also lead to among a vulnerable subset of individuals, addictive, like eating behavior, um, binge eating as well. And, you know, because these foods, you know, if we eat a lot of them, sometimes it makes people feel bad and they sort of attribute that to themselves. But, you know, I think a broader point is that no, they're designed to do that. Like that's in the design. That's the intent. Um, So I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of reach into like, what is this doing to other types of, you know, eating behaviors, eating disorders, you know, related to mood and anxiety and depression. There's actually also some evidence that has come out to suggest that something in the processing of the foods may be interacting with the gut microbiome in a way that increases um, levels of depression and, um, you know, issues with mood regulation. And so the effects are quite pronounced and quite wide spanning does anyone
0: want to hop in on that you know and this is like armchair thoughts which is that if if like you know kevin hall were to do a study into 20 depressed people and fed them ultra processed food diet and a then a whole foods diet. And then we see what changes, you know, and that's unfortunately big food isn't doing anything until, you know, we have studies that make them that, re- that kind of hold their feet to the fire and make them make change. They started to reformulate with COVID at through COVID. They started to reformulate to make foods, you know, healthier because people were starting to think more about that. Now that we're, you know, mostly out of COVID, I don't know that their attention is still there. They may have moved on, right? And now I know they're focused on the ozempic type drugs, the semiglutides, right? Mm -hmm. And the concern and the fear that people are going to buy less of the junk food because they're no longer interested, right? And all the headlines are speaking to that right now. So they're smarter and they have more dollars to spend and they're going to stay ahead of us. And so, really, it's like, how do we get ahead of big food? And without the government on our side, you know, I'm not sure how we get ahead of them.
2: Well, add to that, you know, I mean, big food companies, unfortunately, have. Um, undue influence over the government because of their large investments, and who gets elected to Congress, who gets appointed to the court system, and they're though those you know, they're not interested in uh, abortion other issues. They're really trying to make sure they have no or minimal regulation, and and the result of that is they're able to um, pursue products without the kind of proper oversight. And I'll give you one example. of What's really driving this, I think, with companies is that. Big food companies have tied their increasing in profits, the growth that um, Wall Street demands of them, to really just selling more calories. And so the way that they make more money and grow as a company and are deemed successful is they need to sell more calories. And we're stuck with that. Uh, but they don't stop there. They also use their influence then to affect other government policies. And probably might be the one of the most important is that preventing investment in nutrition research by our National Institutes of Health. Uh, they lobby the Congress to make sure that that's not funded. And as a result, uh, less than 5% of the NIH budget helps us answer some of these questions we're talking about. Um, it, it, think about it. it it's, it's, ex- it's remarkable. We have institutes of uh, diabetes, uh, heart disease, cancer, what are all those those are large multi-billion dollar? Um, institutes that consume almost all of NIH's money um, trying to find treatments for those diseases. But what do they all have in common? They're mostly caused by our food, yet we're not doing any investment in the research to help us uh, solve that. that. That Then companies could benefit that. If we knew the answers of, of why the food is desi- causing these impacts, then the government could help set regulations or say, well, you need to change how you design it. We now know this. We now have a microbiome test. You know, someday we'll have that test, where, that we can force companies when they're designing a food to put it into a model and it, it you know it mimics the microbiome. And it says, well, look, the result, you can't make a food that does that to the microbiome. We just don't have those tests yet. And the reason we don't have those tests are companies have kept the government for investing in the nutrition science to provide them.
1: Well, yes, you've said it very well. The, the fox is uh, minding the chickens, sadly, in terms of uh, looking out for the public interest. So what we do know, you alluded to a study, Larissa, and um, I think you're all familiar with this uh, 2019 NIH study where they had two groups of people. One consumed a diet high in UPFs and the other had an unprocessed diet and they each could eat as much as they wanted for two weeks and then immediately following they swapped the diet. The group that ate the UPFs Ate 500 calories more a day and gained fat and weight, while the unprocessed food group lost weight. This happened in 30 days. So, this is a dramatic study. And instead of people hopping on and saying, God, we need to know more about this, there hasn't been a similar study. Isn't that correct, Jerry?
2: Yes. Uh, Kevin Hall, who Larissa mentioned before, was the author of that study. And first it was hard for him to do. You know, he was from the camp of nutritionists. I'm from that same uh, brotherhood or sisterhood where we thought it was the nutrients. That's what we learned decades ago when we were dealing with a global starvation. If we thought of food, not as food, but if we thought of it as calories, protein, uh, vitamins, minerals, that became the framework uh, that helped us uh, prevent uh, a malnutrition and, and, and health harms related to that. And we've really solved that problem, particularly in the U.S. But what's replaced it is these chronic diseases. And increasingly, when we try to apply that paradigm of nutrients to what's causing the pro- chronic diseases it hasn't you know came out that way now kevin is was of that belief and so he actually did his study to prove that right he matched them for nutrients something you, you didn't mention so the diets the minimally processed the ultra process were identical in terms of these nutrients same amount of sugar fat salt caloric density and he thought the result would be then once you do that this this characterizing food about the level of processing would, would, would matter because we know it's not that ultra processed food is ultra processed. It's that it has more salt, sugar, and fat. Well, when he, corrected for that, he expected to find no difference. Instead, he found, as you described, a 500 calorie a day difference. Now here's another problem with that. First of all, it took him a long time to do that study because NIH has only given him enough facility to enroll a few people at a time. So you say 20, that's not very many, but he couldn't even bring them all in at once and do his study. He had to bring in a couple at a time. That's just because of how poorly they're investing this study. And in any other area of biomedical research, if you got a result like this, so astonishing, they would repeat that study right away certainly within the year um, with more people over more time so he could answer the question. Yet they've done nothing to do that. In fact, they threatened to shut down his uh, lab, not because of his work, just because they heard more from members of Congress wanting to do more research on Alzheimer's disease or other things and they hear about food. So they just were trying to meet that need. But, but you know, it, we're not getting the answers that we need to help to protect the public so that America can have a higher um, life expectancy, not uh, lower life expectancy. And we need to change that. And that study needs to be repeated as soon as possible. You know, we had COVID uh, we needed an answer quickly. We did the research. We had a vaccine in record breaking time in less than a a year to help people here. 14, 15, 1,600 Americans die every day, comparable almost to COVID at its high point, um, every day because of the food. And yet we haven't repeated this uh, study yet to come up with answers. And why is that? It's because the food industry exerts its pressure on the budgets of the government agencies who could help here uh, because they're putting profits ahead of uh, people. And, and one thing I'll point out in particular is just how sick our children are. The food is not only making adults sick, but we have children with uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, many of your listeners may recall when it was called adult onset because it just didn't occur in kids. But we had to change the name because it's become so common. Fatty liver disease, a disease that's, again, associated with older people, alcoholics, now is in children. In fact, in the last decade, the most rapid growing uh, area of, of fatty liver disease is in our children. And so, you know, it's, it's just extraordinary. I mean, again, sort of lifespans, that's awful, we need to do that. But just even thinking about any parent, anyone with children, to know that one of the greatest risks your child faces is getting sick by just feeding them the food that's being sold in the stores.
1: It's a very good point. And so why have we not got health regulations? I mean, you've got restrictions on, you know, tobacco products now carry health, this may endanger your health. Why have we not got this food may endanger your health or a limit. Don't
0: have more than four Oreos a day. I'm like so mad about this because, again, we're putting the consumer in risk. Re- they're responsible for stopping. They're responsible for buying the right things. And what they're not doing it now. They're not buying the right things and they're not stopping. How is a warning on the front of the package going to change their minds or change what's happening? I was in Mexico and I was buying you know, spicy nuts. Clearly you can tell I like nuts. Um, And there were warnings on the package that said it was high in sodium and fat, but I didn't even notice the warning until the next day when I saw it. So to me, that's again, putting the consumer as the responsible party in a sea of junk food. And, you know, it's the sea of junk food that has to
2: change. Yeah, Larissa is absolutely right. You know, I think that there's a role for consumers to play, and certainly people have a responsibility. But for as she was describing so articulately earlier about how people have are required to often work more than one job, uh, work long hours. And, and, And the convenience and cost of food is extremely important to most Americans in terms of what they eat. And they're not being provided those options. You know, you can tell someone, well, you should scratch cook and go to your local farmer market. I mean, that is a very privileged way to be able to eat. And and it's great for people who can do that, we should encourage it, but we need to recognize uh, for most people um, just trying to, even when they get, you know, I'll tell this one anecdote, um, you you know, you listen to people, I meet with people who've been diagnosed with a, a chronic disease, Uh, Their doctors told them that they're going to uh, die much earlier if they don't uh, try to change that. And so the first thing they encounter is they have to go to the store and try to find these foods that are lower in sodium, uh, that don't have some of these ingredients that could make them sick. And it's hard to do. And they find that they really can't get the prepared frozen meals. There, there's some out there at the at the whole food store or something that you can't afford, but in, the, in their local grocery stores, the kinds of ready to eat heat and eat meals um, are, aren't good for you. They'll make them sick, according to their doctor. So they stop buying those foods. They try to eat better. Here's the most heart-wiring thing to me. When you talk to them and say, they go, well, that's not even the hardest part. They go, the hardest part is that I try to eat healthier and my friends get mad at me. And they, what are you doing? And because it challenges everyone's sense of their, of, of normalcy and how the world should work, and it's because the companies and their marketing and everything, you know, people should expect that they, whatever that's being sold in the store, they can eat that and not get sick. That is the, absolutely the right way for consumers to behave and to believe, and, and they shouldn't have to look out for themselves and say, well, well no, we're going to just flood the market with foods, advertising all around, that if you just ate those all the time, you're going to end up with diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And in fact, not just you as the grown ups that. Children will have these diseases. Your child may get an amputation. That's happened uh, frequently because of diabetes in children. That that just shouldn't happen. And companies should not be allowed to get away with that. And we're letting them.
3: Yes. It also plays directly into the industry's playbook about individual responsibility. This isn't a food issue. This is an individual person's problem. So like, we're not creating the food that we're creating is not the problem when in fact it absolutely is, um, you know, to put it back on, you know, primarily on the individual plays right in. It's the similar, you know, that it's the industry playbook from, you know, the tobacco epidemic, same thing for years and years and years, you know, oh, smoking is an individual responsibility, you know, so this, this has been used before. And, For example, the labels on the vending machines, like choose responsibly, like, you know, from the companies and like, oh, watch your calories. But it all plays in and it diverts the attention and it diverts the ability to identify and directly actually address the key driver, which is the foods in the food environment.
0: Sorry, one quick thing, which is that I was at a food conference and someone from a big soda company, you know, one of the two said, we're just creating products that consumers want, we're giving them what they want, where they are. So it's that rise in snacking, it's that rise in different beverages. And they're saying that we are determining what we want, but we are not, right? We are where we are because of what they have done over the last many, many decades.
1: So is our junk food addiction killing us? With Professor Jerry Mand, Tara Fazino, and Larissa Zimbaroff, author of Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course, all of you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.